0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are bringing you a conversation between Chris Beam, the Managing Director of the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, and my co-host here on Democracy Works, and John Chrisman, who is a Professor of Philosophy, Political Science, and Women's Studies at Penn State, and also the Director of Penn State's Humanities Institute. John's most recent book and the subject of this conversation is Positive Freedom, Past, Present, and Future. John and Chris discuss how conceptions of positive and negative freedom impact our ability to sustain a healthy democracy that balances rights and liberty. It's a fascinating conversation and one I hope you'll be excited to dig into. Here is Chris Beam's discussion with John Christman.
1: John Chrisman, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, so John, you're you're kind of an expert on on the idea of positive freedom in particular, and so that's uh, why we wanted to uh, to bring you on and talk about this. We've we've had a number of conversations in the past where I have referenced this idea that that what is being presented is a a limited understanding of of freedom and even called it a negative concept. But I don't know that, that I ever really gave that enough, enough ground to be able to make, be clear what it was I was talking about. And so because we're in a, in a, in a moment right now where freedom is so operative on both sides, right? You have the whole, Argument about wearing masks in public, or about getting a vaccination, was framed around the idea of freedom. And now, with with the, the you know the draft decision around Roe v. Wade being released, the argument there is again around freedom of of my you know my bodily integrity and choices I'm making. So clearly, this is a, this is an a, always an important issue, but particularly right now. So I thought it would be good for us just to try to talk through, from a philosophical point of view, wh- what it is we're actually talking about when we're talking about freedom. So so I think it's fair to say that at a, you know, kind of... I'm actually thinking about, you know, the kind of rock songs that you hear on the radio when they're talking about freedom. The idea that's being presented is this absence of constraints, the ability to do what you want. But there's there's more to it than that. So can you, maybe we just start there and talk about, you know, what freedom is and, and how these different concepts play out.
2: Yeah. Philosophers and, and political theorists and leaders have been debating and discussing what freedom means and why it's valuable for ages in, in roughly the Western world, but really elsewhere as well. And so these debates are not new. And we have to distinguish arguments about what the term freedom means and how to best understand it from questions of what people should be allowed to do with that freedom and how to support that freedom or protect it. Those are arguably separate questions, at least at the outset. So uh, one way to put that is when someone calls something defends a position, when someone defends a position by saying it's a matter of my freedom, that doesn't end the argument. That doesn't settle the issue. That doesn't tell me anything at all. Because I have to then know, what do you mean by freedom, and why should you have that, whatever it is you mean by, the word. So there's still an open question whether you should be able to do what you claim to be able to do. And through the ages, we can go in more detail in the history of these ideas as needed but there have been these competed competing families of understanding the concept of freedom and one is the one you alluded to what people have come to call negative freedom namely to be free to whatever extent one ought to be free to be free is to be unconstrained in one's actions not prevented from doing what you might wish to do and that is sometimes called a liberal conception, but liberal in the broad sense of the liberal tradition. There are left-wing right. liberals right. that would also want to use that, might want to use that mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. of the term, though they would be um, skeptical of free market. Sure. Disagree with libertarians on that. But the, that is a relative, if you look at you know, the history of thought about this, which is about 2,000 years That's a relatively recent way to understand what freedom is and why it's valuable. Prior to that, what, and and the word liberty would be used more often, but I use those interchangeably. Mm -hmm. The way that when people argued for liberty, and this is up through the 18th century in the framing and the the founding period of of the U.S., when people used the language of liberty, they referred to a kind of status to be a freeborn gentleman. That meant you had a kind of social independence, but you also had obligations to participate in your government and and ideally in a republic, a self-governing entity. Well, with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of capitalism as we understand it now, the turn of the 19th century, there arose a different, a slight variation on what people meant by saying they ought to be free. And that is this idea of being left alone, But, and, and that being left alone, period. But what that included most importantly for the people who argued this way is to be left alone to engage in economic exchange, mm-hmm. both with your labor and with your resources. Mm-hmm. And that's why it became associated with the defense of capitalism and the rise, the Industrial Revolution and the rise of capitalism. And there, the government controlling that economic activity was seen as a threat to freedom because it prevented people otherwise desirous to do so from engaging in trade and contract but then toward the end of the 19th century those and those who saw the results of unregulated capitalism the poverty mm-hmm. the child labor the the Long hours thought, well, that doesn't look like freedom to me. Freedom must be something more than being left alone. It must be something like the capacity to act effectively as an agent in society. And to do that, to be dirt poor, is not to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And there arose a family of approaches to the idea of freedom that required that said that freedom required more than just non-constraint. It also required capacities and resources. And that is sometimes, it's a family of ideas, but that is then associated with what you referred to as positive freedom. Mm-hmm. Because the negative means it's an absence of something, right. absence of constraints or interference. A positive idea says freedom is the absence of constraint— but it's also a kind of social empowerment. It's a kind of capacity to engage in your life plans as best you can. And and there, poverty is a threat to freedom, as well as government restraints. Right. right, right. That's really
1: helpful. So so. You know, if you are going to be living in a society, there. Have to be constraints on freedom, right? You can't. You just are going to have to say we drive on this side of the road, right? And you can't get in your car and drive if you've had too much to drink, right? And so there, there is no. I mean, and even with the most extreme positions, like say Second Amendment, you can't go buy a howitzer, right? There are limits within within society, and those those limits are established by society, right? So the idea that you are participating in the laws by which you constrain yourself is part or an essential part of this idea of, you know, Republican freedom or the freedom that goes back to the ancients. Is that that fair to say? Very good, very good. Let's come
2: to that same point from a slightly different direction, but I agree with you the way you characterized it. From... er, the earliest time of thinking about freedom in this negative sense of being unconstrained, um, people acknowledged what you started out as saying, namely that that kind of... No one thinks that there should be a complete absence of constraints on on others' actions. No one thinks that. That was captured most saliently in a famous work called On Liberty by John Stuart Mill by what came to be called the harm principle, straightforward idea, Whatever you mean by freedom, whatever you think the extent of it should be, it is limited by the possibility that you may harm another in acting. If so, constraints on that action are always legitimate.
1: Now, that doesn't mean
2: the same thing applies to harming yourself, right? That's right. So that's a very interesting implication of that. And secondly, going along with that, it... um, not harming another person might be consistent with you not maybe harming yourself but also just not flourishing right. by just right. and so things are prohibited by that idea that at first might be surprising namely if you're harming yourself but no one else i cannot interfere with you
1: as long as you're you know understood to be you know not mentally ill or not otherwise incapacitated you if you want to spend your days getting high and washing rug rats, yes. no one is going to stop you, right? That's right. Right. Or no one should. That's no right. one should, right. But but the but the but the question then of harm is still really complicated, right? Because you know if if I own a factory and I'm dumping toxins in the river there's no individual who can point to this and say, you know, this is unacceptable. We need to put a constraint on this freedom. But if there's, you know, but there is an argument that there is a there are public goods that do require, right? And so, so not only is the question of what's a legitimate constraint always operative, but the question of what constitutes a harm and who can claim to be harmed, these are all fraught questions that uh, force the the concept of freedom back into politics. That's right. Even the idea of harm
2: itself is not enough to capture all the things we want to capture in trying to justify interferences. So if I'm in England and I drive on the right side of the road, I'm going to harm someone, Mm -hmm. but not in the United States. The reason I have to drive on the left side of the road in England and the right side of the road in the United States is because each society came to an agreement about how to coordinate driving there's nothing inherently harmful about driving on the left side right. of the road it's right a convention it's, it's it's a convention yeah. but because it was collectively decided, then i can't I have no right to drive on the incorrect side mm-hmm. of the road mm-hmm. even if there's no one there I, right right so not only do we generally think that we can circumscribe actions that people might want to do and not really interfere with their freedom illegitimately by drawing the line around harm, but also drawing the line around social conventions as long as they were legitimately and properly promulgated, right? as long as they were developed in
1: the right way, democratically is what we would say for short. This idea of... um rights are kind of like a way or kind of cordoning off some things from conversation. But this idea of n- not harming yourself and the idea that you can have a right to do something, but if you don't have the means to do it, don't have the capacity to do it, what does it mean? That is not completely absent from American concept conceptions of government either or politics either right I mean and I think maybe the explicit one of the most explicit declarations of this is Franklin Roosevelt's Four freedoms right where you have um, freedom from fear but you also have freedom from want right and the I and that's you know the point is that if you don't have enough to eat if you don't have some kind of place to live then you know what? What sense does it make to say you're free? And and so there, do you agree with that? That there is this kind of con- conception of of positive freedom that is operative even in an American context?
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think, despite appearances, there's a general agreement on some level of this, because although there may be people critical of the welfare state, they're virtually no one who thinks there should be absolutely no protections or aids to people who are in desperate need, say medical attention at the emergency room. Mm -hmm. So that everyone seems to agree that some level of empowering people to act meaningfully and effectively in society is required to say with a straight face that we're protecting their freedom. And I think the way that language evolved is... Roosevelt used freedom from in all of his four freedoms. There's there's something unfortunate about that, because you're trying to grab everything under this sort of negative notion, what you're free from. And if you get into conceptual contortions, it might be just more meaningful to say freedom to. So freedom to be an effective self-governing agent in society. If that is a better way of understanding freedom, then hunger interferes with that. So does not having a meaningful employment opportunity mm-hmm. of any sort, not having health or housing, because no meaningful, flourishing, minimally flourishing life can be led if one lacks those things. Mm-hmm. So I I think, and and there's debate about this, but I think that a better way of understanding freedom would include those kinds of elements of self-government, capacity to both individually and to some degree socially have some say over the conditions in which you have to live your life.
1: Would you think it's fair to say that as our concept of freedom moves towards a positive conception or involves questions that engage this positive dimension of freedom, government Necessarily becomes more powerful because it has a job to do that is more than just not doing something. That's right.
2: But we have to look at the comparison because, or the the comparison class, because in order for people to engage in, let's take the standard libertarian liberal. The standard libertarian liberals' understanding of, of what the limits of government ought to be, they think that government ought to be restrained so that economic trade and free market capitalism can. Well, we all understand that in order for complex economic markets to operate, the government has to has a lot to do. Right. There is no such thing as a minimal state in Robert Nozick's sense, but in this sense where there, there really is uh, nothing for the government to do. They have to coordinate banking. They have to coordinate currency, mm-hmm. right? Money is a construction by governments, right? A right?
1: kind of convention, right? <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, that's
2: right. There's something called a lira, which is not worth much mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. because of a conventional change. But if you think of all the things, roads, m- the mail, all the things that are acquired for a complex economy to function, it becomes clear that it's an it's an illusion to think that just the protection of maximal degrees of negative liberty with minimal government activity is the ideal. Mm-hmm. So once we get past that point, then we realize, this is why I say it depends on the comparison point. To me, the comparison is already a very complex and and powerful government entity with a lot of administrative duties, then the question is, what should those things do? Whom do they serve? And how do they advance the core values of the society, like freedom in this positive sense? So if you are giving, if your industrial policy or your energy policy is such that it allows certain entities to flourish... Corporations? Like corporations. Uh Then, and... Others that to struggle, mm-hmm. then that's a decision. The question of wh- what freedom mean is not gonna uh, means is not gonna settle that issue. That's a question of what the government ought to do, not whether there should be less or more government. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to kind of separate this more or question of more or less government from uh, the questions of what
1: people think we think government ought to be doing what's interesting about that is you know bringing it back to where we started you know to say my you know freedom is being violated you know by some kind of constraint on vaccines or masks doesn't doesn't get you anywhere in terms of that conversation right you have to have a conversation about the the why behind behind the constraint and whether or not it's legitimate but just to say freedom doesn't doesn't do you anything and and really that that's the same thing on the other side with with the abortion question right i mean of course they would say yes it's a constraint but it's a necessary one because there's a life at stake right and so there is you know this this <laughs> we have a society that is understands itself to be you know very Oriented towards freedom and rights, and I was thinking when you were talking about social conventions and about how you know Singapore, you can't chew gum, right? I mean, this is we are not that right, but at the same time, we we kind of use freedom, we wave it like a talisman, as if it just stops the conversation. And your argument is that it it it, it doesn't, it can't, and 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 in the democracy, it shouldn't, right?
2: Right, yeah. I mean, it's been called famously an essentially contested concept that is it doesn't settle arguments it's it's the concept that results from the argument on other terms and i i have to say i love talking about the idea of freedom i think about it as a political theorist philosopher but i think in most public debate it obscures more than it illuminates because it, once you say the reason i think th- this policy ought to be adopted is because it's a matter of freedom You've just covered up your real reasons. And because just calling it a matter of freedom is the conclusion. It's not, it can't be a premise. And so the, what ought to be done is subtract that concept of freedom or liberty and just say, why ought you be allowed to do this? And why... Why ought you not to be allowed to do Why is it okay that? to prohibit you? That's, right, right. Right, That's right. right. And so questions like the uh, question of reproductive choice and abortion... That becomes a very complex array of questions of women's autonomy, right? right? their ability to make decisions that affect their lives in deep ways. And there's lots of accusations that people who are against that are really not taking that autonomy seriously. And I I see the power of that. And as you mentioned, those who would argue on the anti-choice side would say, no, we believe in all that. We just think there's this other life at stake. Mm -hmm. Well, there the question is, which is debated but not quite as clearly enough, is, yeah, well, how are you defining life? And let's talk about that. And can we all agree on that? Or is that really a religious conviction? Mm -hmm. So these other things and a lot of factual questions, a lot of open factual questions, like the the harm that is done when abortion is restricted, the, the health consequences that Everyone thinks, or ought to think, matters. Just that some think it matters more than others. But there's lots of questions about how much, and where, and you know, who's affected. Mm-hmm. And so, it's important to just separate out these questions and argue for, over what we really are disagreeing about, mm-hmm. and not co- just stuff it under the tent of freedom.
1: It's clear that our public debates around these questions are not productive. And part of the reasons for them not being productive is because we, we appeal to kind of automatically to freedom, but also because we, we reject the idea that we are giving laws to ourselves. Mm-hmm. We see this more as a matter of government giving laws to people. And th- the latter is is a fundamentally undemocratic way of understanding government another way to put that point
2: is to remind you i know you know this very well in the 18th century in the american context the argument was not against the power of government it was a power it was the, against the power of arbitrary government the claim was that king george
1: was an arbitrary ruler he was an oppressor they were not party to the, to, the, to the political process by which those
2: laws were enacted. No taxation without right. representation. So it was the lack of representation right. that made it oppressive. And that's a very important thing to point out, because then it's not as if it was deep in the American tradition to be suspicious of government. It's It's a part of the tradition to be suspicious of illegitimate government. And now, back to your point, that is to say government which is not properly democratic and not the result of a fully participatory polity. And let me make another point that I think it's really important to put in parallel with this. I think that there is another mode of discourse around freedom in the American context, which is extremely fruitful and powerful. It's just ignored in certain terms. And that is the other movement for freedom was not just the framers, but abolitionists. Freedom came to mean the escape from slavery. And if you think of it that way, then it is not merely the protection of, it is certainly this, but not merely the protection of certain rights like speech, association, religion. It is the right to be your own person, to own yourself and not to be completely under the power of another person or entity. And we know from the period after the civil war Mere emancipation, which means really giving someone else their freedom, is not enough, Mm -hmm. because the levels of oppression and poverty and racial um, discrimination, segregation, and domination that took place in many decades after that showed that the freedom that was sought was incomplete, and and maybe still is, but. Certainly was beyond emancipation, and i I would like that understanding of freedom as liberation as escape from oppression to be part of the tradition as well as the constitutional meaning of freedom
1: all right, well, that's really interesting and it and it does raise a lot of you know recollections in my head about the way uh, King would argue, for example. But that, I mean, but it's interesting to me because there you have a group of people, not individuals, but a, a group of people who understand themselves to be illegitimately constrained, you know, vis-a-vis the, the rest of the society. And, and you know, that's still operative, right? I mean, the people in Flint, Michigan, who don't have clean water, or the people in 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 rural West Virginia who were, you know, giving opioids, whatever. There are arguments that are collective as opposed to individual. And, and it is likewise part of our, you know, American tradition that the way you address that is, is by organizing, right? right? By coming together right. and making those claims. Right. Common to think that freedom, liberty is fundamentally an individual idea
2: it attaches to individuals as such. But it becomes clear, especially if we think of freedom as a kind of liberation, as the the goal of of liberation struggles, that people are members of groups, both by choice or by design or, or by social imposition, whether they're racialized groups, whether they are marginalized groups, whether they are men and women or non-binary people, they are put into groups. And as such, the fight against oppression, the liberation struggles that sh- attempts to achieve a, a meaningful degree of freedom for them has to be a group struggle. And this, you know, was a topic of a lot of very interesting discussion in the post-colonial remains, a very interesting discussion of the post-colonial period because of the requirement that it was not enough to just throw off the yoke of the empire, but one had to govern oneself collectively and through democratic structures that represented a people. And so with these social movements from from anti-colonial struggles to to civil rights and women's uh, rights and liberation, what became clear is that the Exercise of freedom required collective action, because people were members of groups and were treated badly, unfairly, were denied freedoms because of memberships in that in those groups. So that was is still the natural exercise of freedom, because we're social beings. I mean, we start out as individuals, but we're all members of of
1: well, groups. And it's also the way the the mechanism by which we give laws to ourselves is right. by organizing by mobilizing and by getting more people on your side than they're on the other side. So when you when you're talking about this, I mean, how do you think you know, people should approach this conversation differently? What is it about, you know, say somebody, "Well, this is my freedom." Then then how does how should that conversation proceed from there? Yeah, if I could intervene
2: in any every one of those conversations, I w- <laughs> I would be rude and say, "Wait, okay, let's stop." First, what do you mean by freedom? If that's what you mean by it, what's so important about it? Why is it valuable? Why should other people grant you that freedom? And is the claim you're making on the basis of that kind of freedom consistent with the value you just pointed out? Many times it's not. So, the, if someone says, refusing to wear a mask is a matter of my freedom, I would ask, what, how do you define your freedom? I'm not sure how they'll define it. Something like, maybe the capacity to uh, govern my own body. Mm-hmm. I care about my own body. Why is that important? Because I have to live a self-governing life. I'm, I'm an autonomous person. I, I need to be treated as that kind of autonomous with respect. Well, okay, but if you are endangering someone else in their capacity to lead a self-governing, healthy life, you're violating the very thing that motivates your... Mm-hmm. your right. argument. Right. right. And now, that may not settle the issue. We've got to talk about whether it's how harmful, yeah, you know, online. Exactly. Sure. But you can't just say it's a matter of freedom. That just covers up that whole much more interesting dialogue.
1: And much dialogue. more complicated and much more difficult conversation, yeah. right? But, but, but your point is that, you know, it is it is intellectually lazy and intellectually dishonest to just say, these are my freedoms, these are my rights, conversation over right to call some one side in a complex war freedom fighters
2: is just a label that says i'm on their side it doesn't tell you anything about what they're
1: fighting for what whether they're right in a democratic society that's that's how you do it whether you know whether it's really the only mechanism or at least the most most salient mechanism that's available to you right yeah all right just a really, really fascinating conversation. I mean, I I just think the idea of, you know, stepping, ac- accepting the idea, the the value of freedom, and 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 then stepping back from that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of conversations in, the, in in the U.S. that would be, you know, better served by your model. So, so so, John Chrisman, thanks very much for for. Uh, coming by and uh, and giving us your thoughts. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you.